Good morning. First Timothy chapter six. First Timothy chapter six. This is our. I'm keeping count the right way. Lucas was on vacation this week, so it's highly probable I did not keep the count the right way. Uh, but I believe it's uh, sermon twenty. Uh, and oh, I did. Good job. Get to keep my job a little longer. Uh, this is our twentieth sermon in the book of First Timothy. Um, we're just going to be reading verses one through two. Um, I have been preaching since I was 16. I pray I am better today than I was then, because I have that sermon on tape, uh, and it's awful. Um, and if you preach long, uh, for very many years, and you end up pastoring the church, etc., you will eventually get invited to preach somewhere else. Um, and uh, that has happened to me. Uh, and I would imagine it's happened to Wayne uh, and others. I would uh, bet without a doubt uh, that any time you have been invited as a pastor or a preacher that I don't know of anyone uh, who would pick 1 Timothy chapter 6, 1 through 2 to be their, uh, to be their sermon. Uh, and yet, uh, when you preach expositionally through books of the Bible, uh, you are unable to skip uncomfortable text, uh, as y'all have well known uh, in our study in First Timothy, there have been several, uh, or a more controversial text, or text that take a tremendous amount of work uh, to understand the history of that text so that we can understand it. To help us as a church, I need you to understand, and we've said this before, but I need to say it again, uh, the Bible is saying one thing. Uh, and it's about the gospel, it's about Christ. Right. And the text is written to a particular person or a, to, or a group of people. And so you've heard me say that the Bible is not written to you, but it is about you. And so there's application there. That causes some people uh, to be uncomfortable. But whether you like it or not, Paul did not write this letter to you. Unless your name's Timothy and you pastor the church in Ephesus. Uh, and he wrote it to Timothy. Now, it is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And there is application that we have in this text to our lives. But that only works if you understand who it was written to. And what those people who it was written to. Or the individual who it was written to. Would have understood it to mean. That's the importance here. Because of that, we struggle, because there are some difficulties in Scripture uh, that we have to say as pastors uh, that we do not understand, although there are some who think they understand it just fine, uh, but I would say they do not. Fortunately for us, uh, those are not subjects or um, issues that regard the gospel or the good news of the gospel or how we come to Christ or uh, any of what we call primary doctrines, but there are some difficult passage in scripture uh, that we are not always able to completely understand. Um, in fact, uh, it would be argued that even the Greek, uh, when we try to translate the Greek, that we are even making some assumptions about the Greek because the Greek is not spoken anymore uh, by anybody, and no one on earth has a complete understanding uh, of the Greek language, exactly how uh, it was written. Uh, but once again, there's not any passages of scripture that cast doubt upon the gospel. 
in this particular passage, we need to understand history. How many of you hate history? Liars. <laughs> Nobody lifted their hands. Uh, but I love history. And so I have to, as your pastor, to be very careful that I'm not... Um, overwhelm you with history, but this is a passage that requires us to reach not into American history, which will be your default. Your default in this text will be American history, and there is nothing that could be more wrong than for you to default there. We need to default way back to ancient Middle East to a culture you have never been in, you've never been in it, you have very little ability to wrap your mind around it because it is a foreign concept to us about what we're going to cover. This is a controversial text because we're going to talk about slavery. And slavery in the Middle East. And, and you've already defaulted to American history because <laughs> that's how we are as people. And, and it's going to take some work this morning. If you came for one of the most exciting sermons you have ever heard in your life, you came on a bad Sunday. <laughs> but if you came on a Sunday that you wanted to hear how the Word of God is preached and how it applies to our life, understanding the history of a text, understanding the point of a text and the purpose of a text, then I hopefully, prayerfully, and because I'm accountable to our elders, I hope we are there uh, today. So we're just going to read... 1 Timothy chapter 6, 1 through 2. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants, also slaves, regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. And this is why nobody volunteers to preach on this text at a church they're visiting. So let's do some homework, and let's get all the cards out on the table. Anytime the word slavery is mentioned in an American church, your mind goes to African Americans and the slave trade in American history. So let's just talk about that. It was an atrocity. And it was an atrocity that the American church, especially in the South, endorsed. And we want to hide that as much as we want to. It is a fact about American history. There were believers and pastors with white skin who endorsed that behavior as godly. And they may have been believers, but I can absolutely assure you they will give an account for their actions in that. It is a stain on American history that, though we may try, we will never be able to erase. It's there, and it's awful. It is hard 
for me as a 45-year-old man to comprehend that just 60 years ago, maybe a little bit past that in some areas, that an African-American could not walk into any restaurant he wanted and eat. That is mind-blowing to me. Uh, we homeschool our kids, and several years ago, uh, we talked about this, and our kids were baffled by that, just baffled by the concept. It is crazy that many of you in this room were alive in a period of time when that actually occurred. I'm not blaming you, although you may shelter blame. Uh-oh. But it is true. And it was awful. And it has caused disgrace to the gospel because of that. And so we want to get that out because that is not what we are talking about in this chapter. It's true. It was awful and it existed. But that is not the slavery that is discussed in the Middle East of this passage. By and large... Slavery in ancient times, not always, but by and large, was very different than what we have today, or what we have in our American history. Um, The slave trade in America was because they were African Americans. It was a thought process, by and large, uh, that whites felt superior in their creation by God to be better than African Americans. That was the prevalent thought. And that's why they enslaved them, by and large. Uh, There are exceptions to all those rules. If you would love to get with me and discuss history on this text or others, I am always available uh, for lunch or dinner. Uh, You buy, I talk. Great arrangement, I think. Uh, But there are always exceptions. But by and large, that was the thought process uh, of how... Um, people thought. In fact, the very idea that we have Southern Baptist churches, this may be a, a new thing for you. The reason there is a thing called Southern Baptist churches is Southern Baptist churches during the Civil War, War were the churches that endorsed slavery. That's why they're called Southern Baptists. Uh, that's why there's not a lot of African American Southern Baptist churches historically. Are you beginning to get a picture? And and so the mindset was, we are better than them, and therefore we will enslave them, uh, sold by other countries, even sold by other countries of African Americans. It's part of the history. It's It's a bad history. But by and large, we enslaved them because we thought we were superior. That is not how most of the ancient Middle East worked. The slave trade happened in the Middle East because your country got whipped by another country. We don't really have a framework for that anymore, because we really don't see nations attacking other nations for the purpose of taking them over and then enslaving all of the people in that and making them work for them. That's a concept that we don't really see, by and large, anymore. And slavery was not generally based upon race. It wasn't based upon a skin color. It was basically based because you lost and someone else enslaved you. Now, there were also people who did kidnap people. 
people and sell them into slavery. But even the slavery system of the ancient Middle East mirrors, and this is why I did all this work, if anyone picks up the podcast here and is about to hear the statement, stop and go all the way back to the very beginning. <laughs> but the ancient Middle East slave trade mirrors in some ways, being really careful, the employer-employee status here. It does in some ways because that was the economic system of the ancient Middle East. Uh, if you had any kind of wealth whatsoever and you wanted to employ someone to teach your kids, you got a slave who was a teacher who taught your kids. Physicians in that day, many of them were slaves who did their work under a master who paid them. They were paid, but they were slaves. The difference in our employee-employer relationship is most of you, if you don't like your job, you can quit and leave. <laughs> Nobody hunts you down. That's not the case in the Middle East. You cannot just leave if you wanted to leave. Uh, because they would chase you. But one commentator says it this way. In the first century, slaves formed a distinct group within the society of the Roman Empire. Although they were the property of their masters, in practice, this did not prevent many of them from experiencing a good deal of freedom and social mobility. Many earned a living or worked in partnership with their owners, and some actually held positions of authority within businesses or administrative posts and lower levels of the government. And it was also not unusual for a slave to receive a good education. On the whole, the slaves in the churches of Asia Minor who heard Paul's message lived in a time when conditions for slavery were improving. Slavery in ancient Ephesus played an important role in the society and the economy. Besides manual labor, slaves performing domestic services and might be employed at highly skilled jobs and professions. Teachers accountants, and physicians were also slaves. Greek slaves, in particular, were generally highly educated people. Now let me help you with a little bit of this, just so you maybe get a little bit better idea of what we're talking about. The prophet Daniel, in the Old Testament, was a slave. They were taken over, and he became a slave, although he held, and eventually held even greater, prominence in the country, he was always a slave. The other person that might remember is Joseph. Joseph was a slave. In Genesis 37, uh, I'm sure it's going to go on the screen. I know I have already have uh, used a good bit of time, so we'll run through these quick. But Genesis 37, you'll remember this when Joseph's brothers uh, didn't like Joseph very much. Joseph was that arrogant. Um, anyway, they took him, put him in the well. In verse 28, it says, Then many and not traders passed by, and Joseph's brothers, they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. We're going to find out in a minute that, by the way, what just happened, according to Old Testament law, was punishable by death. What Joseph's brothers just did was take a free man and sell him into slavery was punishable by death. And anyone who was caught with a slave who was free was also killed. So, so even in Old Testament law, there were rules regarding how slavery could work. 
In Genesis 39, as you well know, Joseph was brought down to Egypt in Potiphar, Potiphar, an office of the Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who brought him down there. Do you see how this works? This is economy. This is how the, the, it worked. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. So eventually, he gains approval. And verse 6 says, So he, Potiphar, left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. This is an economic system that was society was societal norm. Uh, to go back in a time machine to the Middle East and say at a coffee shop, which they didn't have, <laughs> we need to get rid of slavery would be just like someone having coffee with you tomorrow and saying, we need to quit driving on roads. You'd be like, uh, what? I mean, it, it was built into the fabric of the ancient Middle East. That is how things worked. And you're saying, thanks Jason for the lesson, and the history, and the reminding us of Genesis, but what is this all actually about? What is the big deal in this text? Timothy, no doubt, had slaves who had become Christians who were now attending his church. And, and it's quite possible that Timothy also had believing masters who owned slaves. And you thought, and I thought, my church, church of today was hard. Can you imagine that? Societal norm, slaves who are not free to leave, maybe highly educated, they obviously are making a living. They're paying for things. They're getting food. They're well taken care of in many ways. You could still be beaten. There were still atrocities. There were. They still existed. But by and large, it was a fairly healthy, in, in that time period, system of economics. It's just the way things worked. But Timothy would have both, most likely, in his church. We know for sure he had slaves because of the instructions. So, does the Bible, therefore, condone slavery? Uh, if you have ever had to defend faith among those who do not believe, undoubtedly this will be one that comes up. The Bible condones slavery. And anytime you get in that conversation with somebody, the default in America is to discuss slavery in America. And for, so you have to back up and talk about ancient Middle East Slavery. It was different. Now listen, I'm not saying it's good. I'm saying it's different. We live in a fallen world. And there are very few things that we as humans come up with that are not stained in some form or fashion with the fallen nature that we all have, including slavery. But the Bible does have things to speak about it. Let's read Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21 will say laws about slaves. So, knowing this exists, God gives laws concerning how the people are going to respond in a culture of which slavery is the normal economy. And here's what the Israelites were told. 
that these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and then the seventh he shall go free for nothing. That's not American slavery. It's totally different. Do you see that? Totally different. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. Not American slavery. You see the difference? If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and then he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, and I will not go out free, not American slavery. <laughs> you see that? that? That generally did not happen in American slavery, where they said, I love my master, and I love my wife, and I have no desire to be free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, or a doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an oil, all, and he shall be his slave forever. That sounds painful. But then you could stay in that house forever, with your wife, with your children, and to be taken care of. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. This is not American slavery. And if he does not do these three, these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. So even a father who may owe money to somebody or who may need food, they could sell their own children into slavery, most likely right there in the same city, and their daughter could go to work or their son could go to work to earn money for the family or to work off a payment of debt, which is why the Greek sometimes translates this bond servant. It's someone who is paying off a debt that they can't pay it off. So they say, I can't pay this off. So I will come to work for you for this many number of years to pay back debt. And the person who is going to employ them knows they've only got a limited amount of time because the law requires them to free them whether the debt is paid or not. There's so many things you could run with here in the gospel. We don't have time. But do you see the differences in the slave trade here and the slave trade of American history. Verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. It's a serious deal there. You couldn't just go grab a free man, enslave him, and then go sell him to someone else. You couldn't do that. In Galatians chapter 3, 28 through 29, which we read as our elder reading, it says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Let's just stop there. That is huge if you're a slave. If you're a slave, Paul just said to people, so the Bible doesn't condemn slavery. Let me tell you what it does do. It speaks to the societal norm of that period of time, and it says this, if you're a free you're one in Christ. If you're a slave, you're free, and you're one in Christ. That is good news. That is a promise for the slaves. It's for the slaves as well. And then he goes on, and if you're a Christ and you're Abraham's offsprings, 
heirs according to the promise. It's good news. It's good news. But the Bible has much more to say to these servants, to these slaves. 1 Peter 2.18. Peter says this. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and the gentle, so they existed. Do you see that? Hard to find that in American slavery. There were good and gentle slave masters here. Don't just do good for those, but also do good for even the unjust slave masters. And Philemon 8 through 22. Um, Onimus. 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 I knew I'd get there. Accordingly, in verses 8 through 22, let me just give you a little bit. He is a slave who flees his master. We don't really understand completely, but he goes and finds Paul. And Paul, in some, we know, somehow, Onesimus uh, becomes a believer. And basically he says, what do I do now? And Paul says, you need to go back to your master. And he writes a letter to Philemon, who is a believer who owns slaves. And he says, I'm sending him back. And I need you to accept him. And here's what he says um, in verse 15. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while. In other words, for him to become a believer. Maybe even in his rebellion towards you, he came to me, he become a believer, he's become a believer. But he says this, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, a beloved brother. You could camp there all day. Especially to me, but how much more to you both in flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand and I will repay it to say nothing of you owing me even yourself. There's a shot at Philemon. <laughs> yes, brother, I want some benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience. Confident that you will accept our brother back as a bondservant without punishment. I am confident of your obedience. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me. Because I'm coming. <laughs> for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. So Paul never condemned slavery. And the Bible never explicitly condemned slavery. Because it was the social norm of that time. Now, it never endorses slavery ever. It never says, this is the right way to do it. We need slavery to grow. It never says that either. It just says, Here's the reality, and I'm going to speak into that reality. And you're now a believer. I need you to go back to your master, and I'm going to write him a letter and say, Hey, you remember me, Paul, who you owe a favor to? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm calling in the favor. He's coming back, but he's not just coming back as a bondservant. He's coming back as a brother in Christ. And I expect you to be obedient to how you treat him. And I'm coming. Go get a room ready for me. Now, I just think Paul could give you leprosy if he wanted to. <laughs> just my theory. 
Colossians or Ephesians chapter 6, 5 through 9. Ephesians chapter 6, 5 through 9. Paul says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this that will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. That's strong and unheard of in the ancient Middle East for someone to call out a master of slaves like that. Colossians 4.1 Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is in the Bible. This is strong. This would have been so foreign in this time for someone to call out a master. Saying, listen, you better quit your threatening and you better treat them the right way because if you, you think you're going to get away with how you're acting, let me remind you of something. You have a master too. And you better do this the right way. So Paul clearly addresses slavery. But the Bible does not clearly condemn the practice with a particular verse. Although I think Jesus saying in Luke 6.31, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. That's a pretty strong indication that we should uh, not be doing it that way. But why is the Bible... Not more clear on this topic. Now, if you're keeping up with the time, you're wondering, hey, is he close to being done? And I'm not going to tell you. Uh, close. Well, what is the purpose of the Bible? Is the purpose of the Bible to reform society? Is it our roadmap to, to how society should work? Or is the Bible to point out to people a need for a savior? And who the Savior is. It is clearly that the Bible is there to point out your need for a Savior. And that there is one who can save you and his name is Jesus. And then, redeemed people who have been changed and transformed, they then go and engage the culture with Holy Spirit filled lives. That's how this works. Because see, the Bible was written to reform society then this needs to be a lot bigger. Like, should there not be an entire book? Let's just get real here. There should be an entire book written on how we handle social media. Amen? Amen. But, but there's thousands of things that society deals with that the Bible does not address. But it does say, be holy, for I am holy. And so you can take that and apply it to society. And the way you apply that society is by not calling lost people to be holy because they have no power to be holy. It is to call believers to be holy and then go live that life in front of the unbelievers so they stand back and go, that's different. And that is what Paul is doing when he's addressing bond servants and slaves and masters saying, you be different than all the other masters. You be different than all the other slaves. Because of Christ. So the Bible does not call Christians to overthrow the societal norms. It is not trying to rally people. Hold on, East Texas. It is not trying to rally people to a political cause. What? There's nothing wrong with being involved in politics. And we have the freedom in this country to do that. And we should do that. That is not your ultimate calling. 
despite what you do on Facebook. Ouch. No, it's not what we're trying to do. We're not trying to lead a radical rebellion, take back our country for ourselves. The Bible is calling people to a radical life. It's calling people to a radical life. And that transformed individual who's been changed by the power of the gospel influences and engages a culture. And that is what Paul is reminding Timothy about in this passage. Let's look at it again quickly. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. That's a foreign concept when you're talking to a slave. You want me to give him all honor? Yes, here is the motivation. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Because God matters. You give them all honor because God matters. And you claim me. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the, be- all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. This is about the gospel. It's about how we live our lives. We represent God, and we want the teaching, the gospel, the good news that they have been won over to, to be lived out among those who they are around, to have an impact. Now, you could clearly draw uh, some comparisons to uh, current employee employer relationship. You can do that. However, the overriding principle for these slaves, because it's written to Paul, I mean, Paul writes to Timothy regarding slaves. I get it, you could do the, my boss treats me like a slave, but that would not work. Not completely. The overriding principle for these slaves is to honor their masters so that people will see their, their, their behavior and see the difference between unbelieving slaves and believing slaves. To see the difference between unbelieving masters and believing masters. There's supposed to be a difference. That's the gospel. If you believe the gospel, you should be changed. That's what Paul's telling them. You should be different. And no doubt this is a struggle for Christian slaves. It would have been easy for them to have seen themselves as above their unsaved masters. Their heirs of the promise. My unsaved master is not. I'm on the road to heaven. He is on the road to hell. There's a difference. And clearly, some of them were even taking advantage of their Christian masters. Because Paul tells Timothy, make sure they obey their ungodly ones and make sure they work even harder for the godly ones. So we know that there were problems for these slaves in how they walked out their gospel lives. We've heard this teaching before. This idea that the gospel, if you believe in it, should change you and should cause you to live differently among those you work and live around. That's because in Matthew chapter 5, we heard this really well. This is like, if you want to know what the discipleship program or the evangelist, let's just say, if you want to know what our evangelistic program is at Sovereign Life Fellowship, any of you want to know what that program is? Help me help. We hate programs, by the way, at our church. But, but here's evangelism. Are you ready? It's right here. Matthew chapter 5. 14 through 16. Believers, sovereign life fellowship covenant members who claim Christ, you are the light of the world. That's weighty. The world's dark. Sure is. We need some light. Yep, that's you. You're the light. 
A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What Paul is teaching the slaves and the masters is the same thing Jesus had already told them. You have to live differently, no matter your circumstances, because you reflect upon God. Can believers who live out the gospel, can they really impact the culture? Buried in a complex article that I was reading on the history of Ephesus. I don't believe it was a Christian document, at least it didn't seem like one. But buried in this complex history of the rise and fall of Ephesus was this interesting observation. During late Greek and early Roman era, slaves were free in terms of their beliefs and also could get married and have children with the permit of their Lord. But children were automatically regarded as Lord's slaves. In the 6th century AD, because of the influence of Christianity, slaves gained more and more rights, such as participation in unions or real estates. Also, slaves who had shown trustworthiness to their Lord would be set free. It became even possible for slaves to buy his or her freedom with the money he or she had saved. And because of these, it is possible to read about slaves who became bankers or merchants later in their life during history. Why? Because of the influence of Christianity. The fall of slavery was driven by men and women who had a passion for the Lord and who stood up for right. And against wrong. Because that is what we as believers are called to do. So in closing, what's the application for us? It's clear. We engage and impact a culture by believing and living out the gospel. How do you work at your job? Do you do just enough to stay underneath the radar? Do you do just enough to, to not get in trouble? When the boss isn't there, uh, like I'm a boss. So when I'm not there, are, are the employees playing? Or, or, or are you an employee who plays around and doesn't work hard when the boss isn't there? It, it, are you a boss that's a jerk? I mean, I mean, is that who you are? How do you, how do you act in your work environment? Which, by the way, is where you spend about two-thirds of your life how do you behave there? That's the application for us. Because it matters. Do you understand that? It matters how you behave. It matters how you talk. It matters the subjects that you discuss. It matters that people know you as someone who's full of anger and a temper and short fuse. Those are not things that give God glory. We should be people who are set apart by how we live. We don't react like unbelievers. We don't talk like unbelievers. Our fuse isn't short like unbelievers. There should be a distinct difference in how we behave in the workforce. If you're in a job and you don't like it, well, guess what? You're not a slave. Pray and ask God for a new one. But while you're working in the one you're working in, you work better than anybody else in that company. You work harder than anybody else. Pray the Lord makes whatever your difficult circumstances are better. But no matter what happens, we are called to 
behave with godliness. You don't need an evangelistic program to teach you how to win people to Christ. As we've said, as Ben covered so well this morning in focus class, we give very little thought to the consequences of disobedience. Sin calls our name and we run to it. I mean, full, passionate. But then God calls us to obedience and we weigh it. We weigh how well. Are we really going to obey that? Are we really going to do that? We weigh it, we think about it, and that's the one that we should run to. And God has called you to be different than those around you because it reflects upon the God who saved you and on the gospel that we proclaim. That is the emphasis of this text. Now, if you're today and you're like, um, throwing out that G word a lot, gospel, what does that mean? Glad you asked. Here's the gospel. And everyone in here is like, whoo, he's done. <laughs> Here's the gospel. You were born into sin. From the day you crawled, the day you walked out or crawled out or whatever, you knew how to sin. You sinned immediately, right off the bat. You started claiming mine, mine, mine. How many parents remember that? Starts off very early. No one teaches you. You don't have to go any classes. You don't have to read any scripture to learn how to sin. It's there. And that sin separated you eternally from a holy, holy God. And you could never do anything to right your ship. And God knew that. But because of his great love and his mercy, he sent Christ to live a life you could not live. He took your place on the cross, accepted the punishment you richly deserved. He died and he rose again. And you have the ability to give Christ your sin and he will give you his righteousness by repenting and believing. And that is the call of all the scripture. Repent and believe and you will be forever changed in your life. That's how you become a believer. You repent and you believe. And life will never be the same again. And then you are now called to live a life different than those around you. And that causes you to stand out. Not to draw attention to yourself, but for people to marvel at the God who loves us. That's the good news of the gospel. Keith's going to come and lead us in a song. I'll come back with a benediction. My greatest hope for our church is not that we grow. Um, I've been there before as a pastor. Where I wanted to be the big guy who grew and all that kind of stuff. It's not my greatest hope for us. My greatest hope for us is that when you walk into your job tomorrow, people know you as trustworthy high character, integrity field. And when someone asks, why is he like that? They would say, he's one of those Christian people. That's my greatest hope for our church. Because it grows and all that other kind of stuff happens automatically when the gospel is real because we live it out. Let's pray.
pray. God, you are good. Lord, I pray that if I did not honor you well enough in this text, God, that your Holy Spirit would fix that and correct that. God, that you would, by your power, through your word, challenge people's hearts this morning to change their attitudes, to move them to repentance of their sin that has easily entangled them, to that you would have them reflect on who they are at work and who they are at home. And, and God, that you would drive the believers in this room to repentance. That we would have passions to weigh out what it means to run away from sin and to flee to you, to obedience. God, help our church to be this kind of church, Lord. That lives out this gospel to, to take what it really means to live lives worthy of the gospel, that we would do that. I pray, Lord, teach us this, challenge us with it. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you've given us instruction. Thank God that we can read it, and learn from it, and grow from it. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that guides us in all truth. We love you.